So, a Jewish rabbi, a Muslim imam, and a Christian preacher walk into a podcast. It sounds like a joke, but it's really a friendship. I'm Omar Shahid, Imam at Masjid Es Salam. And I am Rabbi Jonathan Case of Beth Shalom Synagogue. And I'm Reverend Ellen Fowler-Skidmore of Forest Lake Presbyterian Church. All of us gathered today in Columbia, South Carolina, to welcome you to our podcast, Abraham's Table. And today we share our experiences and faith perspectives on the theme of immigration. Our father Abraham and his family were immigrants sent by God to a promised land that was, at the beginning of the journey, unknown to Abraham and his family. Immigration has been politicized and used by both the left and the right, but our faiths, Muslim, Jewish, and Christian, and our own personal experiences offer a third way to think about immigration and immigrants. Come with us to sit together at Abraham's table. So I'd love to hear your story, your own stories of immigration. Well, my story of immigration doesn't begin that long ago. I am third generation American, and I recently learned how my family came to America through a variety of experiences from both sides, my mother's as well as my father's side of the family. On my mother's side of the family, I was very surprised to learn that the two sides of the family, the mother and the father, came to America, one as a boy of 11 years old that picked up all of his baggage and walked from Russia all the way to Europe and then finally was able to board a ship in steerage and wend his way to America. The thought that an 11-year-old boy would make that traffic all by himself without his mother leaving them behind never to see them again. I've got a picture of the entire family in Russia all standing very straight, very strong. And I can only imagine what they were thinking as they were imagining that their child was going to be leaving them very soon never to see them, him again. On the other side of the family, my grandmother's side of the family, it was a different story. This story was, and I only know this because of a book that recently came down to me that was written by one of the children. Apparently, there was a pogrom in the small town in which they lived. Cossacks had written in and were literally raping, pillaging, destroying every possible person, home, synagogue, desecrating it. And as they were riding through blood flowing literally in the gutter in the streets, a little boy hid in a basement, and only when it was safe, uh, finally came out. There was nothing left for him there in his community. And like the other story that I told, he too made his way to America. So the journey of my family to America was not one of looking to come to a place that would offer them the great enterprise that they would ultimately find, but rather simply a refuge away from the horrors that they were escaping in Europe and Asia, 
ones that they wanted to forget, and by the way, stories that they refused to tell to the children. I only learned of this a couple of years ago for the first time because they were so silent on not wanting the tragedies of the past to filter into the present and to live under a cloud of the pain that they had endured. Hmm. I was talking to a cousin of mine who had researched the history on his father's side which, and my mother's side. And he said he went back as far as the great-grandfather. And he told me that he knows that Ethiopia, we could go back and trace to Ethiopia, but we migrated, uh, left Ethiopia, our, our, our people, and went to West Africa. I said, Guinea uh, Basu, I think it is, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, Guinea Basu. He said that as far as he could find going back, they were brought to Texas. And there he was, uh, his mother had him at a very young age, very young age. Uh, and then, then they were separated. I think he was, he said, about nine years old. We talked about great-great-grandfather on my mother's side, his father's side. And they were separated at nine years old. And they never saw each other again. And ended up from Texas, he said, possibly in Virginia, but you know, eventually Edgefield, South Carolina. Hmm. So, now it wasn't a search for better opportunities. <laughs> we were, our people were brought here against their will. So, uh, we're here now, <laughs> and uh, that's as far as I can go back right now. In turn, on my mother's side, hmm. is that we, uh, did end up in Edgefield, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when freedom came? Yes, he was saying that my, this uh, person was born in around 1870. Mm-hmm. But something happened in 1868. I think the emancipation came in 1865 or something like that. Right. Something came in, but it was delayed because of some process, you know, eventually uh, we got that, that freedom, but it was delayed in a process. So that, that's as far as I, we have right now. I have to go back and study what he, he uh, compiled, what he researched. But I know he said we ended up in Edgefield, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And, and my immigration story is a story that involves religion. And my, my mother's side the lowland Scots who lost the battle for control over their own lives to the English and the Anglicans came to this country looking for freedom of religion and freedom, uh, political freedom. So they were the, the Moffat clan and filled, found their way down into the Valley of Virginia, which is where my mother and all her family are. And there's an old cemetery that goes way back. So the Moffats are all there. She met and married my father, whose genealogical line is not nearly as clear. As far as we can tell, they were English who hid out in the mountains in North Alabama, married a couple of Indians, and and made what money they could from corn liquor. Um, They were poor people and not well educated. Uh, So we always thought it was a genuine irony that my father became the Presbyterian preacher when my mother's family were all 
uh, missionaries to China and well, very well educated. <laughs> but so that my immigration story has to do with religion and power and control, um, just from a slightly different vantage. All strangers, all coming to a distant land for different reasons, searching for something, or in uh, the imam's case, brought against their will. Mm-hmm. I know I've heard many stories about people who have come to this country and fleeing, running, trying to get to some place where they would find a safe haven and seeing this great lady in the harbor standing there like a, a torch, a beacon, waiting for them to arrive. Give me your wretched, your poor, your teeming masses yearning to breathe free. And I recall reading so many stories about people who read that inscription on the Statue of Liberty by Emma Lazarus, just weeping profusely, thinking that maybe for the first time in their lives, this could be a new start, a new beginning, a new hope. I feel like, although we've come by different ways, different methods, we have helped to make this country an excellent place, I would say, for the real birth of the human spirit and where it can become a model, that the human family can become a model. We've all come from different places, by different methods, for different reasons, but we are now challenged to push or forge ahead to be a model now Mm. for the world, for the world. I'm grateful to hear you have some optimism about that. I, I want to share it. I think the so the, the two values that are always at play, at least in, in my view in immigration, are this value for hospitality and welcome and opportunity and openness and the values then of security and control. So depending on what the need is, when, when we needed free labor, then Omar, your people were very welcome. But when then the slaves gained their freedom and had the opportunity to vote, then suddenly the hospitality came to an end. There, well, there was no hospitality, but the, the, there was a concerted effort through Jim Crow to prevent having to share power or control. And, and so we are still on the horns of that hospitality, security, and control dilemma. When people feel threatened by the stranger, they move to disenfranchise, control, and exclude. When there's a need, and normally those are cheap labor needs, then there's more welcome. We were talking in our congregation about how our congregation should be engaged in the moral dilemma that's now in front of our country, which is that we have left the nation of Afghanistan. And there were Afghans who placed their lives and their families' lives on the line for the security of the United States as translators and Mm -hmm. uh, hosts. And in leaving them in Afghanistan, those folks would have been at risk. And so a number of Afghan immigrants came to this country. But now the hard part begins. We were guests in their land, and now they are guests in ours. And it is—it seems to me our moral responsibility. If if that individual is fleeing for their life from the Taliban, then surely, as a Muslim, they should find a welcome among the Christians in the United States. All, 
all of us. Back in the 1960s, it was a powerful phrase that we all glommed onto that America was the ultimate melting pot. And you're right, we haven't reached that place yet where it has become the melting pot because we're still divided and seeing the other as someone that is dangerous. And maybe it's economics. And maybe it is just plain fear that someone's going to take away something that I have. And this is something that I'm going to go back to Hebrew for a moment. The way we say other in Hebrew is also translated as holy. When something is other, can't be easily categorized in the slot that everything belongs in, it is legislated as something that is holy, hmm. with a capital, o, you know, other with a capital O. And um, even going back in Scripture, when Abraham, this is Abraham's table, when Abraham's wife dies, he goes to the Hittites and he says, I'm a stranger in your land. He acknowledged the fact that he was only there at the hospitality of his and welcoming of the guests in whose land he was now living. And they, as a paragon of virtue and as a paradigm of behavior, they welcomed him in, sold to Abraham a burial plot for his wife and all the children that would follow, including himself. And maybe that's a leaf that we need to revisit again about learning how to be one people instead of blue eyes and brown eyes, instead of brown skin and white skin. I'm, I'm experiencing a little hope in terms of uh, where we're going. Where we were, I'm talking about my people, where we were, where we are today, that spirit, that human spirit, that survival nature, I think others are beginning to embrace that spirit because we are seeing a minority manifest its hatred, its dislike. We're seeing a, a majority, although quietly doing it, not taking part in that. So the hope is that we'll wake up <laughs> to that spirit and zeal that, is, that was infused in our nature that was expressed when, you, when we look at Abraham and uh, how that whole uh, development took place with him. I'm seeing it take place with us because I'm seeing more, even though the media will project the small minority, there's a majority, majority saying, we are not going back. Mm-hmm. We're going to keep going forward. Amen. Yeah, to the promised land. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it's worth saying, and Omar, you'll speak to this, but in the scriptures that Jonathan and I share, there is an absolutely crystal clear connection that how we treat the widow, the orphan, and the stranger is a reflection of what, how we understand God, who we understand yes. God to be, and how we understand ourselves to be related to God. So, you know, the, the scripture can say, do not wrong or oppress a resident alien because you were aliens in the land of Egypt. Don't abuse any orphan or widow. If you do, they're going to cry out to me and I will hear them. That's Exodus 22. And and that theme is carried absolutely clearly through into the Christian scriptures where there's a story about the judgment at the end of time 
in Matthew's Gospel, the 25th chapter, in which the judge comes and separates everybody according to sheep and goats, and he says to them both the same thing. I was in prison and you visited me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And the the sheep, the ones who are welcomed into the kingdom, are the ones who fed, clothed, welcomed. And they say to the judge, when did we see you? And the judge says, every time you fed, visited, welcomed one of the least of these, you did it to me. And the goats are just as surprised. Mm-hmm. He says, I I." I was here, you did not welcome me as a stranger. And the goats say, when? we would have welcomed you had we known it was you. How did We didn't know when you didn't do it to the least of these. So there's, there's this piece where, in, in particularly conservative Christian circles, they don't like the fact there's nothing about Jesus in that passage at all. It's all about hospitality. And the litmus test is, did you welcome, feed, clothe, visit? So... I have a hard time with anyone saying they're a person of faith, Jewish, Christian, and I can speak for the Christians, that then whose ultimate motive is exclusion and control and disenfranchisement. I I can't get from Scripture to that place. I don't know, Omar, how the Quran, I'm sure I should know it better, but I trust you. <laughs> well, I, I'm laughing because uh, without hope, where are we? Without the promise, the promised land, God's will be done on earth. The Quran tells us about the, uh, the two highways. Okay. It says that I've given you two eyes and a shafetain and a mouth. You know, you can uh, see, you can speak, but then it points out the two ways, the two roads. One is steep, and uh, the other one, you know, is a easy downhill road. But the steep road is the, it talks about the freeing of the slave, the captive. It talks about feeding the widow. It talks about helping the disenfranchised. That spirit is... Uh, is there for us that that steep road, that steep path is what we're talking about. We're talking about challenging the, the, so the difficulties that we see coming together, first of all, to bring our minds and our hearts together and keep them together and then do our work. We're doing it as people of faith. Faith in what? Faith in the destiny. And the destiny it's supposed to be better. We believe it's supposed to be better. Uh, if we don't accept that as believers, then where are we? If we don't have faith in it, then where are we? And uh, Abraham, as we mentioned earlier, demonstrates that. He believed in the one who, whom he asked for the son. He believed in that one. And when the one he asked blessed him and then tested him, he showed that he had faith in the one who gave him the son. And look how many sons and daughters he has now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Look how many sons and daughters. Your scriptures say that it would be many. Mm-hmm. Many. Our Quran says many. And right today, if we would come together and stay together, we're already a bigger force for good right now in our numbers. Mm-hmm. We're already a bigger force in our numbers. Two billion Christians, 
plus almost two billion Muslims in the Jewish community, we're already a bigger force. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of truths in what you just said. Truths and sometimes what we hear are the loudest voices, which are the minority. And the quiet voices, which are the vast majority of people, are the people that don't shout and don't scream because they're too busy serving meals, mm -hmm. because they're too busy mm -hmm. attending to one another, because they're too busy offering their kindness to other people. They've got better things to do than scream and rant. And I want to say that I'm a better person because of the two people that I'm sitting with right now. And that I strongly believe that were we to pool our collective thoughts, philosophies, theologies, ideals, ideas, we would become immeasurably rich in thought and mm -hmm. kindness and in intellect mm -hmm. and joy and serve God in the best possible way. I'm going to go back to a, a very old story that is repeated many times over. Why did God create only two people in the Garden of Eden? Why, did, oh God, why didn't God create 12 or a dozen or, or you know, 10 dozen or 10 hundred or why? And uh, the rabbis in an old scriptural rendition say he only created two to show that nobody could say that their ancestry is better than anybody else's. <laughs> That lesson's been lost. That's a good point. <laughs> That's a good point. So, so what do we do and what do we ask of our congregations in order to be better practicers of this shared faith, that the welcoming of the resident alien and the stranger and the immigrant is a direct outflow from our faith in God? I can think of a couple things, but I'd be interested. What do you, what do you specifically, what do you ask your congregations? What do the people who listen to this podcast, so what do we do? Well, one thing that I think we all can do is that whether we go to the mosque or church or the synagogue, is there are people that come in all the time that are not members and not familiar faces. And the worst thing we can possibly do is ignore them. And the easiest, most wonderful thing to do is to welcome them in. And say, oh, by the way, what are you doing for lunch? <laughs> I mean, wouldn't that just, just be wonderful? Mm -hmm. And that, I don't think we have to move mountains in order to change the world. We just have to learn how to be welcoming in the spirit of recognizing that God exists yeah. in every person. You know, you, you touched me there. I remember we were feeding before the pandemic, and we had invited people just to come. I told the community, we discussed it, don't try to hand out any religious material. Don't, 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 don't try to give a sermon or talk to anybody. Just, just let them come in, mm -hmm. get a dinner. There were several of them. If you saw them on the street, they probably wouldn't speak to you, probably would curse you out. They turned, they turned when they were leaving. They turned and they said, thank you. Thank you. I said, thank you for coming. They said, thank you for inviting us. Now, I remember something we said at one of the podcasts when you said, both said, not to take anything away from their humanity, but make them feel the other holy, make them feel whole. 
make them feel like they are someone. And I think that's what we can continue, if we continue to do those small things like that, they'll add up to be big things. You know, I'd add one real specific piece. And y'all argue with me if you disagree, but I think one way, one practice that for me needs to be a spiritual practice is going out of my way at least to hear from the other, mm-hmm. if not to be in a place to meet the other. And and that means making myself vulnerable. So it could be as simple as making sure that I don't always get my news from the same place. Yeah. Or if I'm going to listen to one cable channel, that I listen to the equally opposite cable channel, that I, that I seek out news from both MSNBC and Fox, and I look for sources of news that are the BBC and Al Jazeera, and, and I seek to hear the voice of the other. So many times, and, and technology allows us to sort of encircle ourselves with people who believe the same thing. But be, and, and that's the easy way to do it. The harder way to do it is to actually put ourselves in the place to meet the other. And I'm thinking of a member of this church. We had a discussion about race after one of the horrible killings, murders. And one of my elders said, you know, I haven't done enough. And so he sought out a business empowerment group in downtown Columbia whose goal is to design business plans to help empower minority business men and women. And he was moved to seek out people that he wouldn't otherwise meet to share his business expertise. To me, that's a spiritual discipline. I hope whoever hears us would would go out of their way to at least listen, if not meet the other. Sitting in an echo chamber is not a sign of movement forward. Listening to voices that you already know what they're going to say and agree with you is not an exercise in discipline at all. Mm-hmm. And I wholeheartedly agree with you. And I'd also add a challenge, which is really hard, to go to someone with whom you know you disagree with about issues on the ground and hear them out, hear what they have to say, listen to them with kindness and compassion, because they have an opinion that rests on something that you can find, that you can agree upon. And perhaps if you listen carefully enough to what they say that is dissonant with your own or internal voice, maybe they'll return the favor and listen to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Those, those are two initiatives that are worth engaging in. <laughs> worth engaging in. <laughs> That might be about all we have time to do today. I want to thank you for joining us here at Abraham's Table. This podcast is a labor of love produced by us, Imam Omar Shahid, Rabbi Jonathan Case, Reverend Ellen Fowler-Skidmore with indispensable editing and technical guidance from Andy Hayworth, and musical gifts shared with us by Kyle Lovett from his piece, Shofar Worship, that you can find on Spotify. From Columbia, South Carolina, we wish you God's peace. Salam alaikum. Shalom alaikum.